Welcome to Smashing the Plateau. We help you get unstuck so you can do what you love and get paid what you're worth consistently. I'm your host, David Schreiner Khan. Eleanor Roosevelt has a saying, learn from the mistakes of others. Life's too short to make them all ourselves. Today on episode 569 of Smashing the Plateau, I'm here with the CEO and co-founder of Big Blue Gumball, Todd Churches. I'm going to ask Todd how he had the wherewithal to follow a career path that led to his unique specialty and success as an author, speaker, and consultant. Stay with us to hear all the details. You can find out more about Todd along with all of our previous episodes at smashingtheplateau.com. Are you building your own business after a long career as an employed professional? Listen to our show, Going Solo, also found on our website, smashingtheplateau.com. Now let's welcome Todd Churches. Todd is the CEO and co-founder of Big Blue Gumball, a New York City-based consulting firm specializing in leadership development, public speaking, and executive coaching, as well as a founding partner of the Global Institute for Thought Leadership. He is also a three-time award-winning adjunct professor of leadership at NYU and a lecturer on leadership at Columbia University. Todd is also a TEDx speaker and the author of Visual Leadership, Leveraging the Power of Visual Thinking in Leadership and in Life. Todd, welcome to the show. David, it's great being here. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to have you on. Todd, what is visual leadership? I could do a whole uh, three hours on that, but the short answer to the the question is visual leadership is the application of visual thinking and visual communication to the practice of leadership and management. So the bottom line is in all communications, how do we get people to see what we're saying? And visual leadership gives people the tools, tips, and techniques to do that through using the power of visual imagery and drawing, mental models and frameworks, metaphor and analogy, and storytelling and humor. So there you go. Aren't you glad you asked? I am very glad I asked. And, <laughs> uh, and and in your book, I know one of the things that struck me is that you don't have to be good at drawing to be able to use sketches. Yeah, I have some, I call it ICD, I can't draw syndrome. But if you could play Pictionary or Charades, you could communicate uh, non-verbally. And I actually wrote my first article for Inc. Magazine two months ago called, Can You Draw What Your Company Does? And it was about an exercise I do with some of my clients where they literally have to get up with a flip chart or whiteboard and sketch out what they do and then explain their drawing in five minutes. And it's amazing. People surprise themselves with, then they start asking for different colored markers and they ask for more time. So it starts with, oh, I can't draw. And next thing you know, they want their pictures hung in the Metropolitan Museum of Art or the Museum of Modern Art. So uh, I think the child in us comes out when we use that side of our brain to express ourselves uh, creatively. Yeah, that's actually very smart just to to describe it as the I can't draw syndrome because um, that's certainly the way I feel. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I guess if you know if you ask me the question, well, wh- why don't you sketch out what your company does? I would probably come up with something. Yeah, yeah. It's not a test of your artistic abilities. It's a test of your ability to think visually and translate your ideas into some kind of visual representation. It could even be a, a PowerPoint slide or a physical object. Just any any way to visually represent what you do uh, will help you to get people to see what you're saying. Right, as opposed to text. 
as opposed to text or numbers. And you know, so often in the business world, we communicate in, in text and numbers, but people's attention spans are shorter than ever these days, right? And people have different learning styles. So some people love an Excel, Excel spreadsheet and can spend hours deciphering it. And other people say, you know, give me a graph or a pie chart or something. Let me, let me decipher it. So we need to have a variety of different communication modalities to get ideas across and, and visual thinking is just one of them. Yeah. Well, it's a very interesting way of breaking down your thinking and of describing leadership. And congratulations on the release of your book. I know you spent a number of years working on it and um, hats off to you. Um, it, you. It's, a, it's a great piece of work. Well done. Thank you. And, and it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't lost my job 11 years ago. So there you go. Well, let's talk about that. <laughs> How did you end up in this niche of visual leadership, of all things? Sure. I talk about in my TEDx talk how when I was a little kid, five or six years old, people would say, Todd, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would say, I want to be Superman. And they would say, well, what if that job's taken? What are you going to do? And you need a backup role. So then I would say, all right, then Batman. So those were my two career aspirations as a kid. But as I grew older, I realized that I needed to be a little more realistic. And I set my sights on working in the TV industry uh, or the entertainment industry in some capacity. So I was an English literature major, went to State University of New York at Albany, continued on to get my master's degree in communication. I worked for a year in advertising for Ogilvy & Mather in kind of a numbers kind of job. So I realized that if you wanted to work in a creative job in television at that time, you needed to be out in Hollywood. So even though I was an extreme introvert and a homebody, I did the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life up to that point and packed my bags and my cape. And I flew out to Hollywood and with no contacts and, and no money and no leads, I did a series of part-time jobs and temp jobs. I worked for Michael Nesmith of the Monkees. That was my very first job out in Hollywood. And my millennial students have no idea who that is, but us baby boomers grew up on the Monkees, so we know. Oh, yes. And, yeah. So I worked for him. I was a bouncer in a nightclub at night. Of course, you wouldn't be a bouncer in the nightclub during the day. But that was my night job. I worked a series of temp jobs. I worked for Aaron Spelling, putting scripts together for Dynasty. I was in casting at Columbia Pictures, comedy at Disney, and drama at CBS. And then I got out of television and into the theme park business as a project manager for a number of years. And then after 10 years in LA, it was just time to come back to New York City and settle down. And I've been back in New York ever since. Mm -hmm. And what did you do when you first came back to New York? I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I ended up with a job. Um, just one of remember when we used to cut job ads out of the New York Times, or you know, they'll clip out those little uh, help wanted ads. So I took a job as um, head of uh, program manager for a, a leading training company, a management training company, to revamp their mini MBA program. And even though I have a bachelor's degree in English literature and no MBA at all, I took the job on, and I actually did a good job of it. And in the course of studying management leadership, because I had to know what I was talking about when revamping this program, I learned that there were other ways to manage and lead people other than the tyranny and abuse that I had suffered at the hands of all my bosses in the entertainment industry out in Hollywood. And I got hooked on management leadership books. And in 1998, I don't give away my age, but I started reading them one after another after another, averaging one a week. And I continue that habit to this day, 22 years later. So I read about 50 management business books a year for the last 22 years. So I've well past the 1,000 bookmark. And if you're on video, you can see half of my collection on the bookshelves right behind me. Yeah. I think you're the only other person I know besides a mutual friend of ours, Helena Escalante, who, I love re Helena. who reads so many business books. 
Helena and I always say we're uh, twins separated at birth. Bookworms separated at birth. You took a bookworm and cut it in half. Helena would be one half and I would be the other half. So Helena is one of my favorite people. So, you know, but after studying management and leadership, that, I, I developed a passion and that became my purpose. And uh, ever since then, I've been doing work around management, leadership, development, consulting, and executive coaching. Yeah. And was that job that you just mentioned, the, the training and development job, the, the last your last stint as an, as an employee? No, I had that job. I was fired. That's another story. Uh, a little political. There was a, it was a toxic environment, dysfunctional management. The irony was that the management training company was the worst managed company I'd ever worked for in my entire life. So uh, there was a certain irony there. But yeah. I got let go there. <laughs> I had a couple of other jobs, but then I... I was always, I always say I'm a three B's kind of guy, even though I talk loud and fast because I'm a New Yorker. Um, I'm a three B's back of the room, behind the scenes bookworm. So that's, those are my three B's. So even when I was doing the management leadership training job, I, will, I was always behind the scenes. I never once in a million years ever thought I'd be up in front of a group because in all my years of school and work, I never had to pub- do any kind of public speaking. And I was terrible at it and terrified of it. And I was thrown into a situation where I had to do it. And then I realized, you know what, it wasn't as bad as I thought. And I, and I wasn't as bad as I thought. And I ended up taking, after 9-11, I was out of work. And um, everything was kind of depressed in New York. And I needed something just to get out of the house and do something. And I took a Dale Carnegie course. And I just forced myself to do it. I went the first day. And I said, this is not for me. And I almost quit. So you know how we have crucible moments in our life, turning points? Um, Oh, yeah. That first day of the training, I went there during the break. I almost went home and said, this is not for me, but I forced myself to go back in. And if I hadn't, I don't know what I'd be doing today because that just led me down this path of building my confidence and my public speaking skills. And I went from doing that to being hired by a, a financial services company to be their head of leadership development. And I was there for three years. That was my last full-time job, a company called LiquidNet in New York. I loved it. It was my fa- one of my favorite jobs I ever had, one of my favorite bosses. I loved the company and culture. But we got hit by hard by the financial crisis of 2008 that actually hit the company in 2010. So I actually got laid off in January of 2010, which was exactly a little over 11 years ago. Wow. And what made you decide to to start your own business at that point? Uh, it was a tough choice. Like I had two options at that point. Again, like Robert Frost, the road not taken. Two roads diverged in the yellow wood. I was, I was at the crossroads, and I had two options of getting another job or trying to anyway get another job in leadership development somewhere or starting my own company. And I just got I just reached a point in my life at that age. I was around forty at the time where I said, you know, I don't want a boss again. I want to have control of my own schedule. And my own, you know, have the autonomy to make decisions about my life. And so as much as I love that past job, I just decided to form my company, Big Blue Gumball, with my brother. And now we kind of both do work under the Big Blue Gumball heading, but completely separately. We have our own clients and everything else. But if that hadn't happened, I might still be at LiquidNet, which wouldn't have been the worst thing in the world. But if I had not left, I wouldn't have written my book. I wouldn't be teaching at NYU in Columbia. I wouldn't have done a TEDx talk. I would not have, I just, I don't know if you know the MG100, Marshall Goldsmith's uh, top 100 coaches. Yep. I just mm-hmm. got named to that group, even though there's 250. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. There's 250 in the, I'm, I'm number 250 out of 100. So uh, that's, uh, it's expanded. Fuzzy math. Yeah, it's expanded beyond the t- <laughs> Otherwise, they would have had to keep changing the website and the branding. So it's still 100 coaches. But that was a huge honor. And I, that, again, that wouldn't have happened if not for everything else. So there's a silver lining. No regrets because everything I, I've done since then 
has worked out. Ups and downs, of course. You know, there's not getting a paycheck, not having paid benefits, feast or famine. There are some times of the year where I do amazingly well and I could go two or three months with zero income. So, but that's the life of an entrepreneur, as you know. Mm -hmm. How much did you know about running a business or consulting when you first started? Altogether, pretty much nothing. So I didn't even know where to start. So we we became an LLC. I everything I just luckily I'm an avid reader and I have a a nice network. So between talking to other people, that's what I'd say is like if you're gonna pursue a path, you know, that's the expression about standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Find people who are a step or two or three ahead of you and kind of see if you could pick their brain or follow in their footsteps. And most people are pretty generous with saying, sharing the wisdom of their experience. And Eleanor Eleanor Roosevelt has a saying. Learn from the mistakes of others. Life's too short to make them all ourselves. So while I've made a number of mistakes myself, I try to you know, speed up my learning curve by talking to other people who've been there and done what I was aspiring to do. Yeah, and how long did it take you until you felt like your business had reached some kind of sustainability? Yeah. Well, I was very lucky that the company I was laid off from was my first client. So even though I lost my full-time job, they allowed me to keep my office. In fact, I hate that. I haven't seen it in the year because of the pandemic, but I still have my office at the company that I was laid off from. So I had it for many years. And then they moved from 37th and 7th into the New York Times building. And they moved my office. I still have a cubicle there. So I have not seen it since like February of 2020. But that's how generous this client was and appreciative. So that's why that's another lesson. Like don't when you get laid off or fired or whatever, don't burn your bridges because you're the, the company that you worked for could become a client, could become an advocate, can be a vendor. So always maintain those relationships, accept defeat with grace. And they handled it very well. Cause I've gotten laid off and fired where, you know, they trick you into going down to HR. Next thing you know, there's a security guard at your desk with a box, you know, as if you're being sent to prison. So I've experienced that feeling, but this company did the exact opposite. They were very gentle and generous and, and empathetic. And, uh, because of that, my boss became one of my best friends and we co-teach together at NYU. So that job, starting with that one client, helped me build my business and, and gave me some foundation to start out with. Yeah, no, that that's actually um, an amazing lesson. And um, I've heard this from many guests. Because they have accepted defeat with grace and realized that it is, although it may feel awful, very little of it is personal. It's primarily a business decision that, yeah, you can turn it around and you could turn that uh, former employer into an anchor client. Yeah, I always think back to The Godfather, right? It's not it's not personal, it's just business, Sonny, right? So, uh, right. <laughs> but, but it is. I mean, sometimes it is personal. I have been laid off by or, or fired by a couple of sadistic bosses where it was definitely personal. It was very hard to... Uh, one of the chapters in my book, I, I coined the term PTBD, post-traumatic boss disorder, because one time I saw this boss in a meeting that I was at, and this was about two years ago. So it had been about 15 years since I last saw her, and my whole body reacted as if... Uh, I started getting a panic attack, having a panic attack and heart palpitations. I literally had to get up and leave the room because she was so abusive to me when I worked for her that all of those feelings came flooding back. So in that case, it was very personal, but um, in many cases, it's not, it's not. It's a financial decision or a restructuring or something like that. And, and like you just reiterated, it's like leave with grace, keep the relationships going because you just never know. I've, I've seen people get laid off and then work for someone, another, the same boss again at another company, I mean, or become a client or a vendor. So you just literally never know. The world's a small place. Um, that is for sure. So, Todd, um, I know that you 
you know, you've already talked about how many business books you have consumed in your life <laughs> and how you have come to focus on leadership as a discipline. How did you, when you first started your consulting business, how did you actually figure out your exact niche? It's what I had a, I also have two P's, passion and purpose. It was what I was passionate about. And my personal mission statement is making the world a better place, one leader at a time. And to me, everyone is a leader in one way or another. So if you start with that, I talk about that in my NYU and Columbia classes. I, in fact, my next class at NYU is tomorrow night, and I'm going to open with it's session two of the course. And I'm going to say, raise your hand, how many people here are leaders? And very few of my students are going to raise their hand. And what I'm going to say is, by the end of tonight, I'm going to ask the same question again, and you will all be raising your hand because we're going to redefine what it means to be a leader, right? Mm -hmm. We need to lead our own lives and manage our own lives. So we are all managers and leaders, regardless, even if you're a solo Preneur, you still need to do that. So, so I'm trying to help other people be more successful. Marshall Goldsmith, that's his mantra, is helping successful people become even more successful. And that's what I try to do. Not help bad people get good, but help good people get, get great. And that's what I try to instill in people. And I think one of the biggest issues, and I write about this in my book, is confidence. I didn't have confidence for many years. Like when I worked in the entertainment industry, I, as an introvert, I never tooted my own horn. I never self-promoted. And even now it's uncomfortable. We kind of have forced to do that on social media because otherwise people wouldn't know who we were. We are, we need to build our brand, but it's outside of my comfort zone. So I try to help people build the confidence to raise their hand and to speak up and speak out and be the leaders they have the potential to be. Mm. And how much of your niche is the visual leadership well, it's really the foundation of everything I do. So basically, how visual leadership came to be is when you combine my background, my love of television growing up, my years of reading literature, I, one of my claims to fame in high school, probably my only claim to fame, I was pretty, but uh, was I read the complete works of Shakespeare by the time I was 18, literally every play, poem, and, and sonnet. So I was an avid reader. And if you think about it, television, literature, my years in, te in television and the theme park business, it's all about storytelling, right? It's about character. I always say to people, you are the, the lead character, you're the protagonist in your own life story, right? So stories have beginnings, middles, and ends, just like our lives do. There's vil villains, victims, and heroes. At different points, we all play all three role roles. There are obstacles to overcome. There's the hero's journey, right? So if we look at life as storytelling, that's what I try to do, incorporate, again, metaphor comes from literature and, and art. Uh, storytelling is all around us in our culture. So I incorporate my background in, in literature and, and entertainment into my coaching and teaching practice. And my company's motto is we make training entertaining, and our goal is to educate, engage, and excite. Right. So what do we want people to learn? How are we going to capture and hold people's attention? And how are we going to inspire you to, to make a change? So it really all ties together. So what's interesting is, I, think, I, think, I forget who said it, it may, it may have been like Steve Jobs, said, we don't connect the dots looking forward, we connect the dots looking backwards. So if you look at, we talk about career paths in the HR field, and I always say it's not a path, it's a roller coaster. Ups and downs, twists and turns, exhilarating highs, terrifying plummets, right? So on our career roller coaster, we really never know where it's going to lead. And, and I don't know what's next for me from where I am, but I'm very happy with where I end up, ended up. And you know, some things were luck and chance, other things mm -hmm. were preparation and opportunity meeting. So, um, yeah, so that's what I'd say to people is look at everything as a learning opportunity. Resilience is key, bouncing back from adversity. Nelson Mandela said, I never lose, I either win or I learn. So look at everything as an opportunity to learn and to grow. Mm. So if you if you're unclear about where your path is going to take you, how do you approach 
next steps? How do you approach planning? How do you approach opportunities, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, I'm a continuous learner. So it's to me, it's actually kind of exciting not knowing. Like if it was all laid out, there are very few people I know. Like are you like if I asked you when you were in high school or college, do you envision did you say at this age, this is where I picture myself doing? Probably not, right? Most people not even close. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so unless you're on some kind of career path like a lawyer or a doctor where this kind of linear and structure, then there's like a step-by-step kind of thing. Most people end up where they end up. And uh, you know, people my father used to say he, you know, when he was 75, he's like, I'm still not sure what I want to be when I grow up, right? So I kind of come from parents like that, where it's just, although he was an IRS agent for many years, so he didn't exactly take the most creative job in the world. In fact, he used to take me to work with him, and his, his uh, co-workers would say, Harvey, why are you taking Todd to work? So he'll follow in your footsteps, and my father would say, no, so that he, so that he won't. So he knew that there were bigger and better things for me, so my parents were great in that way, in terms of uh, empowering me and and letting me choose my path. Although my father did say, what are you going to do with an English literature major? What are you going to do with a concentration in, in poetry? Are you just going to sit under a tree and rhyme all day? So, um, But I do use my English literature background in many ways, including my ability to write and think critically and, and some of the other things I mentioned. Mm. You know, at, at this point, how do you describe your ideal client? Anyone who's willing to learn and to grow. Marshall Goldsmith said, you can't coach people against their will. Because I once asked him that question, because sometimes I'd be hired by a company and assigned to a person as their coach. And coaching can be perceived as either a perk or a punishment, right? Some companies bring you in and say, can you coach this person? They're broken, they need to be fixed, and they're out in six months if you can't fix them. And other companies say, here's the high potential person. Can you help this person get to the next level? That's why I aspire to people who are willing to do their homework. I'm a big as you know, I prepared for this conversation. I always over-prepare, and that's served me well many times. But you got to do your homework. And one of the things I say to my students is that the most of the learning will take place not in class, but in between classes, if you do the work in between. And I say the same thing to my coaching clients. You have to own your own learning. You know, If you just say, all right, our one-hour coaching sessions every other week, that's not going to get you to where you want to be. You need to do the work in between the sessions. And you got to be, Jim Collins said in Good to Great, don't discipline people, hire self-disciplined people, and then turn them loose within a framework of freedom and accountability. And that's my motto is, you know, people need to be self-disciplined and self-motivated and take ownership of their future. Mm. Um, it is so true. It is so true. And I'm sure that uh, you can be super helpful to them when they're when they have those characteristics. I do my best. I love working with people who have a sense of passion and purpose and helping them. You know, you reach a certain point in our lives where we are as baby boomers that the, I have a Venn diagram that says that wisdom is where knowledge and experience meet. We can meet a, a millennial who's more knowledgeable when it comes to technology or social media, but they don't have the 30 years of experience, the failure, the trial and error that baby boomers do. And baby boomers may not have the cutting edge and the tech savvy, but when you combine the two, that's where you become more wise and you make better, wiser decisions. So it, it's about continuous learning. So a lot of my students say, oh, I'm when I graduate from school, I don't have to learn anymore. It's like, you're just starting. If, you, if that's, you know, in an ever I always say in an ever-changing world, if you're standing still, you're falling behind because the world is speeding past you. So we got to keep the wheel turning and keep learning and growing. And if you're doing something that you love, I love business, but right. So if, if it's not like someone's forcing me to read one business book a week, I do it because I love it, right? I have a passion for it, and that's become part of my brand and who I am and how I learn. But some people may prefer to learn through TEDx talks or listening to podcasts like yours. So whatever it is, just keep learning, but find the modality that works for you. Well said. 
Todd, if somebody wants to go deeper with anything that we've discussed today, access any of the myriad resources you have or get in touch with you, where's the best place to go? Sure. The best place is my website, which is toddchurches.com. It's my new website. I also have my company website, bigbluegumball.com, but that's more for my training coaching business. But for most people, if you go to toddchurches.com, you can find my TED Talk there. You can find information about my book. And as a special offer to your guests, I usually only offer this to people who take my workshops, but I'm going to say one of the the, um, chapters in my book that I think would be really helpful to people who are going solo and entrepreneurs is my passion skill matrix. So if you go to Todd churches.com slash passion, you could download for free that chapter from my book, and that'll give you a, a free sample. I always talk about Baskin Robbins, little pink, spe- uh, little pink spoon approach. You give someone a spoonful and they'll buy the cone and hopefully the gallon. So that's what I'm doing for your audience is allowing, uh, inviting everyone to just download that uh, passion skill matrix model. Uh, let me know what you think and connect with me on LinkedIn. I live on LinkedIn half my time. So connect with me, interact with me. Let me know uh, what you think of the chapter and, and keep in touch. Yeah, it's a great offer. So thank you so much, Todd, for both for taking the time to join us today on Smashing the Plateau, sharing your insights, and for that that offer of uh, of part of your book. My guest today has been the CEO and co-founder of Big Blue Gumball, Todd Churches. Thank you again, Todd, for joining us. Thank you so much, David. When you visit the Smashing the Plateau website at smashingtheplateau.com, you'll find a summary of each episode along with the links we mentioned on the show. Today we learned how Todd had the wherewithal to follow a career path that led to his unique specialty and success as an author, speaker, and consultant. Remember to subscribe on whatever platform you listen on and leave a review if you can. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show. I'll see you on our next episode.